Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 the foul. Boom, 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 the yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen, Ken and Murph. Hi, Ken and Murph. Hey, how are you? We were live at the Sugar Club last night. Absolutely brilliant crowd there. Brilliant night. Almost all of the crowd appeared to listen to the podcast while in the shower or the bath. We were asking people how they listened and where they listened to the show. A lot of baths, a lot of showers. Mm. I listen to most of my podcast. Dangerous. Yeah. Is it? Very d- well, unless you have, you've plugged into a, into a speaker system. Yeah. Uh, which you can then place a safe distance from, uh, you know, any any water. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're sitting in there with the iPhone in the bath and the headphones in, <laughs> teetering precariously above the water line. Yeah, come on, yeah. Ken, will yeah. you? Okay, right. Okay. Come on, get switched on here. I generally on. listen to my podcasts while cycling, cycling around the place. Yeah, but someone said, as someone pointed out, it's incredibly dangerous to do that, Alan, so you shouldn't do that. Yeah, I don't want to agree that it's that dangerous. Someone uh, had said that they uh, don't... I can't they drive, remember they drive to work on, on Mondays, Mondays and, and Thursdays, Thursdays because, uh, well, only sometimes on Thursdays, but all the time on Mondays because um, it's too dangerous to cycle and listen to headphones. And I know people who do say that, and I think they're probably right, although I have to say that a lot of people just, it's kind of safety regulation that a lot of people are prepared to ignore. Mick Steele was the man. Mick Steele. How could I forget the name? It, it, it is quite a, quite a uh, memorable. Well, I wouldn't worry too much about the safety concerns, Ken, because... I don't know why this is, but you can't, it's very difficult to get a pair of headphones. But it's the well, it's probably more the software in the iPhones these days. Mm. It doesn't allow you to listen to the thing loud enough to actually hear anything that's on there. A bus goes by and you lose fifteen seconds of your podcast. If you have to, then you have to stop. Of course, stop to be safe. Yeah. Then you press your back fifteen seconds button. Start again. Truck goes by. Oh, I can't hear that no matter how high the volume's pumped up. And I don't, I don't want to blare it out. I don't want to hurt my eardrums. But I do like to hear what I'm listening to. Yeah. The new Bill Simmons podcast lately. Been listening to quite a lot of that. Really? Graham Hunter, another good another good podcast with Darren Fletcher. In the I haven't heard this one. one. I haven't heard this one yet, but I'm, I've, I've heard a lot of good things. About and you are reading, uh, there's good insight into, very good insight into Alex Ferguson, which I'm slightly surprised, not surprised by, but I didn't think you could get any more, <laughs> more insight into Ferguson than what people have already said. But Darren Fletcher was very good on 
it was kind of put to him, uh, you know, how did he how did he keep guys motivated for all this time, uh, all that kind of thing. And he said, look, we never knew what was coming. We just didn't, it was just unpredictable. We didn't know. And that doesn't mean he was always shouting at us. Sometimes it was quite the opposite. You go in 2-0 down, think here it comes. And he'll just sit there really calmly, go through a couple of points, tell us, you know, we're better than them, go and win the match. It, the speeches before the Champions League games, he said, particularly the finals were always absolutely unbelievable so you could really get a sense he actually fe- he talked very warmly about Ferguson more warmly than I've heard some former players talk about him uh, which was interesting but you were re- you're reading an article about the other side of Alex Ferguson at the moment well I'm just I'm I'm actually practically in tears here Ron. <laughs> I'm practically in tears aching for the the past the past that's gone forever Ron, but briefly brought back to life by Rob Smythe in the Guardian today. Well, there's actually a piece for the Blizzard, but uh, it's on the Guardian website, and it's looking back to October 1995, um, a time on that I'm old enough to remember very well, <laughs> and with great fondness. Uh, and a game between Liverpool and Manchester United at Old Trafford, a two-all draw, maybe the best of the games between the well, the sides that would go on to be remembered as the class of '92 and the Spice Boys. Um, and uh, Robbie Fowler scored two goals there. Cantona scored two goals. It was Cantona's first game back after his bat. And essentially, this is a really long article by, by Rob, which is kind of looking back at that side and uh, looking back at that, that time. And that's <laughs> just a little, you know, because one of the things that summer was the summer Ferguson kicked out Conchelskis, Ince and Hughes and brought in his babies, you know, uh, his. You'll win that with kids. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which I wish thought I'd mention the that. quote is there in in its full form and it's not as strong. He says, I, you know, Hansen says, I think they've got problems. I don't think I wouldn't say they've got major problems, but they do need to, you know, maybe bring in a couple of big players. Um, you'll win nothing with kids, but it's it's in relation to Paul Lince, um, talking about why Ferguson kind of fell out of love with Ince, and essentially Ince sometimes. Uh, ignored instructions and kind of had notions about himself and thought he was more of an attacking player than a kind of destroyer, which is how Ferguson saw him. But uh, they lost, obviously, to Barcelona, a famous game in Manchester United with, without some key players because the foreigners rule got absolutely wiped by Romario and Stoichkov in, the, uh, in Barcelona. Uh, the Barcelona game was the beginning of the end of Ferguson's relationship with Ince. Now, I'm, I'm afraid, Owen, that I'm going to have to repeat Alex Ferguson's words here because they just don't really work. If I spell it right. So I'll say, this is in quotation marks. It's Rob Smythe, right? Just in case anyone is offended by what's about to happen. Alex Ferguson via Rob Smythe via Ken Early. The Barcelona game was the beginning of the end of Ferguson's relationship with Ince. You fucking bottler, Incy. You can't handle the stage, can you? Was Ferguson's halftime observation. <laughs> when Ince replied, don't you dare call me a bottler. Don't you dare. Ferguson walked purposefully over to Ince and hissed in his face, you are a fucking bottler. <laughs> Good man management. So that was uh, that was <laughs> That's the end of it. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. it's the carrot and sometimes it's the stick. You know, players react to different things. Your entire things in different career ways. is nothing, Inzi. I remember Paul Ince scoring a goal against Manchester United in the 98-99 mm. season. He scored a late equaliser for Liverpool and Anfield against Man United. Another two-all draw, mm. and the celebration was just <laughs> so offensive. I mean, remember... He ki- he was kicking the hoardings at the cop oh, end. Oh, he was just what, what, what was it that Ferguson said about it? It was That was as good as it got for, it, for <laughs> Liverpool that season or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think, I think it actually was that season. It was a poor season for them. But 
you know, he enjoyed the moment and now I can kind of see uh, what might have been in his head at the time. We're going to bring you our excellent chat, really enjoyable chat with Emmett Malone and Brian Kerr from the Sugar Club in a little while. We talked to Ireland Bosnia, Klopp's start at Liverpool, Bayern Munich's protest, the danger of football destroying itself by ripping off supporters, all those kind of things. The Manchester derby, though, is on this Sunday and John Bruin was watching Manchester City last night live, beat Sevilla just about 2-1, John, with a late goal. Kevin De Bruyne seems to be fitting in seamlessly, though. Uh, I would say seamlessly, Owen, in the, in the, I didn't think he actually played very well last night, but with a goal like that and the fact that he has scored, I think it's five goals in his eight appearances, also supplied five assists, um, that's what you pay £54 million for. Um, he's a player capable of supplying just those type of moments, um, the moments that Jose Mourinho didn't actually trust him to provide. Um, and I suppose the thing about... Um, De Bruyne and players like Sterling is that they're actually changing, they're evolving the Manchester City side beyond that sort of famous five that they had of David Silva, Aguero, Yaya Toure, Vincent Company, Joe Hart. There are other influences in that team, different dimensions and at the moment, you've got to say De Bruyne is the chief one among those. Do you think that he... I mean, I'm interested that you said, OK, he didn't play well last night. A player can can maybe not have a great game and still end up scoring a goal. But don't you think that his performances so far... I mean, you mentioned the statistics, which are very impressive. Have his performances so far not not been as impressive as the numbers would suggest? I think there's a little bit of that, yeah. I mean, I don't think he's quite been as dominant as he perhaps was as a Wolfsburg player. Um, I don't think he's as dominant as, as De Bruyne, the player, might ex- himself expect to be. Um, remember what Jose Mourinho said about him, and obviously there are certain uh, influences that there are certain uh, inferences he's trying to make here. But he, he said that De Bruyne is the type of player that thinks he should be central to everything, has to play every game, and it's certainly that way when he plays for, for the Belgian national team. Um, at City, he's not yet the central figure. I think last night, actually, uh, Yaya Toure still remains the central figure for City. Um, he's actually the only one of those famous five that played uh, at any part in the game. Actually, Vince Company came on towards the end, but that's about it. Um, he's De Bruyne, though, his influence can grow. And, you know, as I've said, it's only eight games, which is a pretty promising start. Yeah, and I suppose the inferences there would, are that De Bruyne maybe does a little bit of moaning behind the scenes when he's not the central figure, but surely that's exactly what every player like that should aspire to be. You, you should want to be the main man, and maybe the manager's job is to, well, either to uh, m- convince you that you should be patient or actually somehow manage that trick of convincing you you are the central figure when, in fact, clearly it's still Yaya Torre. Yeah, and I think that's perhaps why uh, Manuel Pellegrini is the right manager for... De Bruyne. I mean, he said afterwards that um, he, he signed him as a player because he trusted him to provide those moments. And I don't think that what you have with Mourinho is, um, I mean, you consider the current standoff he has with Eden Hazard. Uh, yeah, he expects players to do what he prefers first, which is go through dis- defensive work and all the rest of it. Pellegrini is a manager who has defenders defend, defensive midfielders defend, and the rest of the team. Uh, if they're attacking players, are trusted to attack and supply moments of magic like the one that De Bruyne did. And Yaya Torre uh, plays in midfield but is pretty much allowed not to do any defending and supplied the goal for De Bruyne to score. So 
Pellegrini is a manager that trusts players to do that, and uh, he's a diplomat as a manager. And uh, eventually, you would expect, and I think uh, that the De Bruyne becomes a more central figure. But last night, he was put out on the wing with uh, Sterling, I suppose, sort of channeling down the middle. But eventually, you could see them switching over, and both of them with great comfort in either position. Yeah, I think one one impressive thing about him is um, when I was watching the uh, the goal. Uh, on TV, the commentator mentioned, or the co-commentator, I can't, I can't remember who the co-commentator was, said, oh, uh, and De Bruyne here switches the ball onto his strong left foot and has a shot. And I was I was thinking, I'm pretty sure he's actually right-footed. But, he, you know, his left foot is obviously so good that the commentator thought that he, that this was his, uh, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. What Do you know, is he right or left-footed, John? I always thought he was right foot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure yeah. he is. But the commentator thought, okay, so this is, and, and the goal was with the left foot and it was, pinged right into the corner of the net. I mean, it was it was brilliant. But uh, you mentioned Sterling there as well. Um, I mean, has he been getting on there, John? Because obviously his transfer was pretty acrimonious. More comments again from his agent, A.D. Ward, during the week kind of explaining or seeming to pin more of the responsibility for that on, on uh, Brendan Rodgers. Uh, do you think that at City, people are convinced that uh, they've signed a player who is definitely going to be, uh, who's definitely going to take them to a higher level over the next few years? I, I think there's still quite a lot to prove there. I mean, three goals against Bournemouth, first hat-trick at the weekend, that's obviously heading in the right direction. I wasn't overly impressed with him last night. I think there's a lot of running down blind alleys. Um, his vision compared to players like Torre and De Bruyne is not yet there. Um, but he is 20, and... Uh, a lot of players take a, a while to develop beyond 20. I mean, you, you think of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's example made that you know he didn't really hit his scoring straps until a while after that. But Sterling's heading in the right direction. He's done well. Um, he's also comfortable uh, with where the manager puts him, which is either um, to the left wing, which he says he himself said is his best position, or through the centre of uh, through the centre is behind. Uh, Wilfred Bonny last night, which was a bit of a thankless task considering that Bonny had a bit of a nightmare overall and is certainly not at the level of playing with Sergio Aguero. But Sterling is a player uh, who's developing and I think that was perhaps one of the problems that he had with Brendan Rodgers is that they felt that his development was being halted by the fact that Rodgers was shifting him all around the team. Oh, that's, that's such nonsense, stuff, John, isn't it? I mean, man, I mean, he played like left wing back for like 30 minutes in one match. Yeah. What, what did you make of that? Because that was kind of interesting in, in A.D. Ward's interview. He'd done this big interview and he said, uh, I felt subliminal messages were being sent to Raheem uh, and he was being shifted all around. And he, he referred to that Manchester United game where, where Sterling was shifted to several different positions and he said, I, I, I was sitting there thinking, well, this is interesting. This is interesting. And I thought, okay, that's not really a, a subliminal message uh, as such, a subliminal message is, is a different kind of thing. But what was the message that Brendan Rodgers was sending? You're not important, Raheem. You're 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 a guy we can we can shunt around. Well, I think Brendan Rodgers would would uh, place it as that uh, tactical flexibility is what he expects from his players, and that's something he certainly preached throughout his three years at Liverpool. I think Ad Ward's view of Brendan Rodgers appears to be quite jaundiced. Um, if you see, I mean, he, in that interview, didn't he, he mention that, that clip from the Being Liverpool thing where uh, Rogers accuses Sterling of saying something behind his back. And which, which, again, I thought was really a very minor incident. 
Surely, I mean, it, that seems to me like a like a you know two minutes later, everyone's more or less forgotten about that. Oh, obviously, that's not how it was felt by Sterling or his agent. I suppose the fact that it became part of this. TV show gave it an importance greater than would usually be attached to something a manager just say, telling one of his players basically to shut up. Yeah, I, know, I think actually, I mean, one of the things about that that was the, that was pretty much forgotten. I mean, one of the things about the, that being Liverpool documentary. Okay, Rogers, uh, there was a few things that he had to bear, like the <laughs> the picture of him in his own house of himself, and uh, you know. Uh, some of the some of the fairly gnomish pronouncements that he made, but Liverpool did a good job of airbrushing that out of out of history. And I think that Sterling himself uh, began that next season. Remember the first season of Rogers' career, flying as a young player, and Rogers obviously was very good for for Sterling's development as a player. I, I, I think that even Sterling himself would have to admit that, and I think he has admitted that. But it does seem that the agent and Rogers, who you know, I am told did used to get on. Something's gone wrong with their relationship over the last couple of years, definitely. Just on the United side of things, obviously Anthony Marshall gave away the penalty, but another goal last night, and Louis van Gaal was singing his praises, talking about his consistency, which I suppose is the, maybe the most impressive aspect of Martial's season so far with Manchester United. He's had flashes of brilliance, but they've generally been, it seems, well, you've, you'd have seen more of him in the flesh than... We certainly would have, uh, John. It seems like he's delivering quite consistently, which some players in his position, they never get to that level even after 10, 15 years. No, exactly. And he, he um, I suppose the one stat to consider at this point is that he's already scored more goals than Radamel Falcao did for Manchester United. So um, I think Falcao would have cost £43 million if, if they'd have bought him. Uh, we, we know that... <laughs> Uh, that Martial might cost fifty-eight million. I think it is if it if it if, if all comes t- true for him, which includes a Ballon d'Or, which may be a little unlikely. But there's a player who's hit the ground running uh, in a way that was probably unexpected by everyone. Perhaps even Louis Van Gaal, though he may well be trying to say that this was part of the process these days. But um, he's a player who uh, showed a great, a great deal of determination to play himself back into the game after committing that handball. Um, the thing that I notice, actually, when you when you see Martial play, uh, there's, a, there's a real economy of movement. He's a very smooth-looking player. He looks unruffled. Um, there are no histrionics. His head does not go down. Um, you, you do wonder if, when he gets a little older and uh, life becomes a little more complicated as it does when you get beyond your teenage years, that things will change, but at the moment, he looks the absolute model striker and a model professional. Um, I suppose one question is when Van Gaal is going to properly restore him to playing as a central striker and uh, not putting Wayne Rooney there, but that day may come, uh, considering Rooney's low-level performances continue. Well, this, I mean, I saw again last night, John, there was a uh, I think BBC had tweeted a stat about Rooney saying, oh, um, Rooney has touched the ball 40 times tonight, which is less than any Man United player except De Gea. And uh, loads of people then, that you, you know, whenever there's a kind of something like that about Wayne Rooney, you, can, you know what all the tweets underneath are like and people are expressing harsh views on Wayne Rooney. Um, and it's almost kind of become like a cliche now. This season, like every almost every game, it's been the same story. 
Uh, everyone is kind of having a go and giving Rooney a bit of a kicking. Everyone apart from Gary Lineker, who, who sees a different Rooney. But I mean, what do you think is the what do you think Louis van Gaal is actually making of this? Is he able to ignore all this noise and say, "Look, Rooney is giving me what I want from my captain," uh, or is he is he going to be worried about what's happening? And, and from Rooney's own point of view, this game, this Manchester derby on Sunday, if he really is still the player that Louis van Gaal seems to still seems to think he is. This is the kind of game where he has to deliver for his team. Yeah, and he's always had a, quite, a very good record in Manchester derbies as a player. Um, let us recall, of course, that it's Saturday's his 30th birthday. Um, so uh, a, a very key weekend uh, for Wayne Rooney. Um, he, uh, there, there is a sense that, that Van Gaal might not be as uh, wrapped with Rooney as he perhaps was uh, uh, certainly in, in March this year when he talked uh, about how Wayne Rooney was delivering inspiring team talks and coming through for him on the field um, Van Hal is essentially one of the most ruthless men in football there will come a point when Rooney stops if Rooney continues to, to not produce for him that he may cut the cord with Rooney and that might come soon um, and a poor performance in a game uh, against Manchester City which is a key match uh, may well be that that moment. Um, I think that there may well be uh, waves made in that relationship over the next few months, next few weeks, perhaps, if that continues. The thing is, with, with the Manchester United is and under Van Gaal, they haven't really been embarrassed in, a, in one of those big matches against uh, their rivals. Well, apart from the other the other week exactly, at the Emirates, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And um, th- this has to be a sort of keynote performance from United. From Van Hal and by extension from Wayne Rooney. All right, John, brilliant as ever. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. Yeah, that Rooney Van Hal dynamic will be interesting because it doesn't really matter, Ken, what anyone, it doesn't matter what your keyboard warriors have to say about Wayne Rooney when he scores a goal or when there's a tweet about him. Mm. It does matter what his manager thinks of him. Mm. I don't know. I don't think there are signs yet that there's any. Well, there won't be until he's gone. You know That's what I mean? the way it works with Van Hal. Well, I, I mean, Van Hal's not going to hit you're an effing bottler, Rooney. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe he will. I'm not sure, but I mean, it would be crazy to to show lack of faith, open lack of faith in Rooney until he'd made the decision. Right, Rooney's done with me, you know. Because I think Rooney. I mean, one of the things Ferguson said about him, and I know Ferguson can't necessarily be. He's not necessarily a reliable narrator. Like he's, you don't want to believe everything he says about Rooney. He does seem to have a bit of an axe to grind with that young man. But, you know, that he's not a naturally the most confident player. Like, he he needed, like, a bit of, oh, come on, Wayne, you know, it's going to be okay. He actually needed a bit of that. Well, you know, Ronaldo obviously didn't need that. Ronaldo's just sort of strutting around chest. By the way, have you seen Ronaldo's new movie coming out? No. He's got a movie coming out on uh, November 9th. Better than Rooney's movie again. <laughs> oh, no. Rooney got Gary Lineker to make a documentary about him. Obviously, Ronaldo went straight to, I think it's Asif Kapadia, you know, like, you know, yeah. Senna Sen- and Amy. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen Amy yet, but it's supposed to be great. Senna is obviously brilliant. Yeah. So, R- Ronaldo. Uh, and I mean, I've seen the trailer or, or some little clips of it. And mainly, it seems to be Ronaldo and Ronaldo <laughs> Jr. You're in this massive house, right, which looks like a kind of, you know, a massive high concept house. Uh, just lift, And Ronaldo's just lifting weights. 
and doing chin-ups and stuff. <laughs> and little Ronaldo's like running around trying to pick up the dumbbells and stuff. And Ronaldo's just there like this muscle vest just showing off. I mean, this movie looks amazing. Like, it's an hour 40 minutes world. of that, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously lots of great shots of Ronaldo whoa, coming out of the Bernabeu and this kind of, you know, God striding around the, the sort of flooded turf. It looks, it looks pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's pretty much Danny Reefen style stuff, but like, you know, it looks good. What, what were we talking about again? Wayne Rooney. Rooney. So poor old Rooney plugging away still in, in Manchester. Uh, maybe he's going to, this, this is the moment. This really is a big moment for him. I mean, at the moment, I'd, I'd say you'd have to fancy City to win this game. Um, but if Rooney can do something, if he can at least play well, I'm not even saying score, but just play well. Um, I think he can he can arrest a lot of this slide that's been going on because people are going to remember what happens in this game. This game is going to set the tone for a lot of what happens next. It's time now to go deep, deep into last night's Irish Times second captain sports night with Rabo Direct from the Sugar Club in Dublin. We'll pick it up with Ellen Malone. Got a seat and a microphone there, lads. Brian, let's get straight to it. Can I ask a question? You can ask a question, yeah. If uh, Joe Smith takes over England, does he have to give back his Irish passport he got a few weeks ago? <laughs> uh, clear, yes. Uh, Brian, tell us, are we going to do the business against Bosnia? What do you know about the, the Bosnian challenge? Um, well, I watched Bosnia a little bit in one game. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, I didn't have much reason to watch them before, no. And I think um, we'll have a handful. Uh, after the Ukraine, they would have been the team I would have not liked us to be playing. And uh, I think there's some very handy players. So those of you who watched um, some of the football last night on TV3 before we got frozen... Um, may have seen Panic scoring the goal for Roma and he's a very good player he scored at the weekend a free kick as well and um, he's really decent Zeko's a good player Spalic is centre half Lulic for uh, Lazio goalkeeper Begovic and generally they're a very good technical side painting a pretty grim picture here Brian well that's, I just kind of warn on people in case they think, ah, it's only Bosnia. And then we have to play Herzegovina as well. I think it's kind of... Un- <laughs> it was a bit unfair that we have to play two teams. Everyone else has to play one. But, uh, no... Uh, why are so, these teams always so much better technically than we are from that part of the world? Why? Um, we probably have an hour now. Listen to rugby for an hour. Jeez, I had six weeks of it. Now another hour of it tonight. <laughs> anyway, rugby. Yeah, there was a lot of rugby on lately. Why, why are they technically better? Well, I think they come from a culture. Um, and I think our culture is contaminated by the fact that we have a lot of rugby. And we have a lot of soccer. <laughs> we have a lot of rugby and a lot of soccer. And I think we've too much Gaelic as well. And hoarding. <laughs> And what happens when, when you're playing in school, you've got to play, or if you come from around my area, you had to play the Horlin and you had to play the Gaelic. And you were definitely not to play soccer. But I think that's had an impact on the style of the game in Ireland, that nobody comes from a culture where it's only and specifically soccer, where the influence is, we just play it 
like we should play it. You know, the lads were talking about rugby in New Zealand and the kids from the youngest age groups been told that you, you, you catch it and you pass it. You catch it, you run with it, you pass it quickly. We come from a background where it's bleed and build it as far away as you can from yourself because that's what they used to do in Gaelic. They do that in England though as well and they don't get it. Well, hold on, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. <laughs> you asked the question, why are they technically better? And I'm trying to give you some reasons. We have a culture that's it's a, it's a bit of a hybrid. It's a mongrel dog of a soccer style we have. Right? And... That's not going to change too handily. Where they come from a tradition of the old Yugoslavia, Yugoslav Republic, um, toward the World Cup in 1930, I think they were fourth in 1962, Red Star, Belgrade, um, and all the split, uh, Hajik split, and all the great teams and styles they had within the Yugoslavian Republic. When it broke up, the, the seven different nations since it broke up have continued on in that vein and that style of football, which is a, which is a, a, a very technical style of football, which is built into the culture and coaching of the people. It's ingrained. It's like, it's like some things that are ingrained in particular counties here. It's obvious in the Horn and the Gaelic. I won't even mention the names. I Jesus, I will. Kilkenny and Kerry and all that stuff. Right. And it's ingrained within them and it's passed down through people and generations and players and historically the standards are set. Yugoslavia had that in the past and it's going on now with Serbia, Montenegro, uh, Macedonia to a lesser degree, smaller population base, Kosovo maybe in the future when they get recognised. But that it's also combined with a roughness and a toughness where people have had it, not had it too handy and an army background and, and physical strength. And that's the style. Ours, as I said, it's a bit of a mongrel. At the moment we're a bit like, we're going through a stage of development which is the Netherlands light, is what I'd call it. Right? We're playing 4-3-3 with all our underage teams. And it seems to be like uh, we'll all be members of the non-tackling union in future. And it's just nice, nice, nice. But Jesus don't put into a bit of passion into it. And that, it's just, that's, where, that's where we're going at the moment, unfortunately. But in the current, the current regime, I think we have, a, we have a fair chance against Bosnia. Really, I think we have a fair chance. But I'd give us no more than a 50-50. Well, in the short term, there is one way of a technically inferior side beating a technically superior side, and that's by running more than them. That's certainly a large part of Jurgen Klopp's plan at the moment, lads. Uh, they, they, the first team this season to outrun Spurs at the weekend, I mean, it's a nil-nil draw, but uh, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville did a good piece on Monday, which outlined what looks to be a change in style uh, that, that's going to be implemented there. I mean, it seems fairly basic, that, and people are asking, well, why weren't they doing that sort of running for Brendan Rodgers? It, it does seem pretty basic, and it does seem like you, you always think of, of, of these things being something that can't be sustained. It's one of the oldest things in football, that when a new manager comes in, they talk about the players not being fit enough under the, the old regime. And, I mean, there has to be more to Klopp than that, and I think there is more to Klopp than that, but certainly it's, uh, it's amazing that this has been seen as such a revelation at a club like Liverpool, and it's, it's, it's not going to get them very far. It's not a, I don't think it, 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 you know, if, if that was all there was to it, there was no way that Liverpool can close the gap on the top four. You know? No, it's not. It's, a, it's, it's not a cure for all ills. Um, I had an interesting conversation with Graeme Soons last night be oh, yeah. before the, before the programme, 
and we were not talking specifically about Klopp, but talking about that attitude that if you run harder and run more and the figures add up at the end of the match, you have a fair chance of winning it. And he said, you know, he said, you know who one of the best players I ever had was? I said, go on. He said, two guy. I said, two guy, yeah. <laughs> Turkish lad in the middle of the pitch for Blackburn Rovers for about eight years. He said, Brian, did you see him running? I said, I did. He didn't run a lot. He said, no, but he always had a bloody ball, right? Yeah. And he didn't give the ball away. And he said he was one of the best players ever. So it isn't always. Uh, you might say Blackburn Rovers win. I think it's a really interesting kind of way to think about the game now, this idea. Like, he's quite explicit about wanting to outrun the opposing team in every game. And, and they, 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 in Germany, but then, it's like, it's you know, is he going to sign athletes? Is he going to sign fellas oh, off the pitch? I mean, the Dorman team. team, the Dorman team is mainly 22-year-olds. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, but, but I saw the them idea, in the Champions League finals. always used to be, he always used to be, um, you know, save your energy or use it. You, you've only got a certain amount of energy. Don't squander it. Make the ball do the work. You know, this kind of idea of economy or efficiency. And this is like the opposite of that. It's like, no, just, you know, bang, bang, we're going to put it. I, I think there's going to be an awful lot more to it, as Emmett said, than that. This fella's now gobdaw, and he'll adapt over a while. I mean, I saw his team in the Champions League final against Bayern Munich in London. You were probably there as well. And, you know, the first 20 minutes, they, they tried to blast Munich over and didn't, didn't get the breakthrough. Neuer made a few saves and all that. But then the game settled down a little bit. Um, Gundogan in the middle of the pitch. He's not a frantic merchant chaser now. He's a bit more of a... He's playing here in the match of Jeremy. He's a little bit more of a cool customer just playing around the middle and holding. He's not all frantic. I mean, he had his Dortmund team. He had Levi, um, Lewandowski, center forward, and Blazikowski, the Polish player, the right side, and Piszczek is the right back, and um, he had Guetze. He had energetic fella, but he had the main goal scorer. His, all, his assets were he was able to build a team in that style when the game in Germany, when he went to Mainz initially, there wasn't anyone playing that high-tempo game. It took him three years to get Mainz out of that league. He went up, he got them into a respectable position. Then he goes to Dortmund. And it was a big change in the, in the Bundesliga for someone to go doing the high-press game, getting around the pitch. He was ahead of the posse, and he had the right players, and he built the team. Subotic and Hummels at centre-back. Nobody knew who Subotic was, and he signed him from a Belgian team. Hummels, he got him on the cheap from Bayern Munich. He made the team out of it, but I, I, I think there's a lot more to him than that, and he'll adapt the style if it's not... I, 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 like... Is, is, is his team going to run any harder than a Sam Allardyce team, for instance? Better players, maybe. But they're going to run harder than Sam trying to whip a bad team into shape. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it'll be a combination of his personality, his tactics, the walk he, he has, the fellas around him, an adaption of tactics, the selection of players. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think the Bundesliga was in a really bad place at the time that he was coming into his own. And it... And it tied in, sorry, it tied in uh, very much with what, the, what the, the DFB, the German Federation, were doing. There was lots going on there in terms of the development of young players. Increasingly technical young players, but, you know, increasingly fit too. But they were transforming a situation where, you know, a lot of the run-of-the-mill sides in the, in the Bundesliga had really completely lost their way. They were doing stuff on the cheap, you know, importing players, um, importing very ordinary players that weren't improving teams or whatever. And Klopp's immediate impact there was dramatic. I think he's going to find it more difficult, obviously, to have that sort of impact in a league that's already so well-developed and so, so well-funded. 
The other news this week, well, the news in the Champions League last night, aside from Arsenal's win, Brian, and before TV3 froze, was the protest by the Bayern Munich fans who had their banners there, £64 being too much for a ticket and football being nothing without the supporters coming in after five minutes being applauded by the Arsenal fans. Is English football now, is the, this whole bubble that's kind of relentlessly um, gotten bigger and bigger, is it in danger of actually endangering the future of the game? The price of the tickets. The price of the tickets, which is fueling everything well, else. Yeah, well, it's not fueling everything else. I mean, I think the seven billion um, pounds. So it's it's nearly sorry, seven billion euros that's due to come um, into the game for a three-year deal, and that's only for the domestic rights on the for 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 the um, television rights. They still haven't sold on the overseas right to come in at three billion. That type of money. Did the Bayern Munich fans have a point though with their protest? Of course they have a point. And and we have seen small signs of an uprising in supporters. The um, supporters federation of supporters clubs have um, tried to make a case for limiting the costs I mean, of I mean the thing the is, that 7 billion euros doesn't just come from nowhere. That's like, it's like a tax on people who have Sky. I watch on television. Sport, you know? Yeah. And, they're, and, and they're paying it. It's getting more and more expensive. You can't see the Champions League now on free-to-air TV in the UK. I think that's, that's true. It's all on BT Sport. Yeah. So you have to pay to see it, which means most people aren't going to see it. And then you were, we were already talking earlier about, like, uh, you know, this... The, you know, the comparison between, say, Robbie Keane playing football all the hours and now, like, now what happens? You're kind of, the, the trends are, are, I mean, they're making a lot of money at the moment, but the trends for this game are not good. The trends are not good if you're, if you're paying in. I mean, the one that really baffles me is why the away supporters want to go to a match at all. Because you, you get stuck in the worst part of the ground, wherever you go, usually with a line of stewards standing in front of you to block your view, and you still have to pay 40 or 50 quid for a ticket every week. I, I mean, they even do it in it's the League, also, uh, League of Ireland here. They put people in the worst part. I, I, don't, I, I don't know why guys are prepared to do it. There's, it's there's also in, in England, uh, because it's been distilled down to the hardcore nut jobs, uh, because nobody else will do it. I mean, I, I used to travel around England in the 80s when I lived over there and, and, and go to away games, and it was astonishing. It was just the most terrifying experience. I mean, I know it's improved now uh, to, to, to a large extent, but... Uh, but you're paying 100 quid for a ticket, in, in 100 euro for a ticket in, in many cases. Um, you're still corralled around by the cops as if you're, uh, as if you're a scumbag or as if you're, you know. Um, That's your right. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a horrendous experience. You know, it's just the old thing about the Nick Hornby, the Nick Hornby uh, story about being, I think it was at Stamford Bridge, and, um, and the, the Arsenal fans are still corralled into the end of the, jo into the ground. And the guy, they've been held in for a good while afterwards. And uh, they've been held there while the guy has come out with the roller to roll the pitch afterwards. And every time he, he's rolling it towards the Arsenal fans, he's just driving the thing like that, you know? And, uh, and that's just the way football seems to treat away fans in general. It's got like a metaphor for it all. Yeah, it might be, but uh, are we exaggerating to say that this, any of this matters? Is it just is it marching relentlessly on that's it? Well, I, I think it matters. You wonder where people's threshold is. I, I think attendances are starting to turn. I think well, like well the, the Premier League are claiming that there's still 97% occupancy every week in the Premier League, which is amazing. They also they report it's like Arsenal report the stadiums full every week, and it's not. 
that four. Yeah, you can look at it. They they give a, a figure of you know well, one of the things that the biggest clubs is season tickets. So you're under so much pressure, like there's a three year waiting list or something like that to get a season ticket, and and now there's like a, all these exchanges where you can try and offload your season ticket, and that takes a bit of organising. But the reality is that you know for any but all but the bigger games now. Again, it's it's playing to people who have money, money to burn, you know, that they can afford to shell out for the season tickets and 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 simply sit out some of the games, you know, the ones they don't want to see. Well, they I do think that I it's do repulsive. Think, I do think that the federations of the supporters clubs are having an impact, and that the clubs are becoming a little bit a little bit more reluctant to up the price every year. The, the price over the last five years, I think, have gone up. Uh, twice the rate of inflation and so on. It seems a bit unreasonable given they're already so high. But I think the other thing that's worrying for them is the number of kids who actually get to go to matches, which the, the Premier League claim 40% of those going to matches are between 18 and 35. Now, but I think the concern for them should be what's the percentage of under 18 because if people don't start to go to football before they're 18 they may never get into the habit maybe they're going to the lower leagues where the prices are still quite reasonable but the Premier League the prices are crazy Do, is, there, is there a line where people will just say no I'm not going anymore I think that will only come when the media in general um, spooks the idea that it's a great league and it's fantastic football and every match every week is fabulous. When they expose that, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think, but they're probably reluctant to because it's an industry yeah. for them I, as well. I, I think for the London clubs, there's also, like, London is such a tourist city. I mean, the last couple of times I've been games to London, I've been sitting, you know, like, if you I talk about the, the late 80s and going to, I worked in London, went to, you know, whatever game was on, and, and it was real hardcore. You went to kind of Chelsea or you went to uh, Spurs or West Ham, and it was, it was a kind of hairy night out at times, you know? The last time I went, I think, to Stamford Bridge, I had a, a bunch of Japanese tourists kind of sitting beside me asking me about the rules of the game as the match went on. These people had paid about three... They thought it was rugby. Yeah, <laughs> these, people, these people had paid 300 quid for their tickets, but it was like uh, taking in a show while they were in London, and there's, right. a, there's a good chunk of that. It's a, it's a, healthy, um, a healthy kind of a, a audience and market for these London clubs, particularly. Very, very quickly, as before we let you about go, are we going to make it to the Euros? Take care of Bosnia. Brian? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That, that's the briefest answer Brian's ever given. Perfect. Emmett? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was only messing earlier about Bosnia. That's that absolutely brilliant. So Emmett Malone and Brian Kerr! <laughs> Murph, before we give away a thousand euros tonight, please let our lovely audience in on our exciting news. Uh, yes, indeed, Owen, because, uh, folks, we are announcing... Uh, for the very first time, that the Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 1 is available to pre-order right now and available in Easton's and all good bookstores from November the 9th. Round of applause that gets, I believe. Yes. Uh, now, I'm sure all the lads here remember the old shoot annuals that we used to get. The, the girls in the crowd will remember Bunty and all of the rest. Well, we don't define our book along crude sexist lines because the Second Captain Sports Annual is for everyone, and I mean everyone. Uh, we have... At home with David O'Doherty. There you go there. Uh, we have long-form articles for you to get stuck into, such as our exclusive interview with Damien Duff. No, uh, thank you, yes. And uh, Ken on Conor McGregor, as well as articles from US Murph, Amy O'Connor, Jerry Eisenberg, and, uh, well, all the second captain's team, I suppose you can read those as well. The Guardian's amazing David Squires gives his take on John Delaney and Dennis O'Brien. And uh, we finally find out what really happened to Ken's football career 
uh, in Marseille. It's, uh, <laughs> so it's uh, 120 pages, 15.99, available to pre-order at secondcaptains.com forward slash annual now. So uh, get, it, get them while they're hot. And uh, for your enjoyment, Ken will now read a passage uh, from his diary outlining his time in Marseille. Ken, what have you got for us? Um, the year was 1989, and the city of Marseille was like a magnificent open goal waiting for me to shoot my football into. My opening game hat-trick against Rome ensured that my name was on the guest list at all the best parties, and I was intent on sampling all the delights available to me. I'm reading this with the same sense of discovery with which you're hearing it. So, um, I became acutely aware of how important it was to project the right image, and so I quickly developed a taste for all the finer things in life. Slip-on shoes, turtleneck sweaters, double-breasted suits. I was a thrusting young blade in the Marseille single scene. But old habits die hard, and my fascination with the seedy underbelly of the city was bound to get me into trouble. In the apartment below mine, there lived a 68-year-old mother of three. Let's call her Mama Isabel. She was one of the main figures in a ruthless underground bridge game, in whose bosom, I admit, I found solace from time to time. I'd run up debts of 150 francs or more inside a few months, and she warned me that she knew some people who would make life very uncomfortable for me. Given that most of my 100,000 francs a week wages went on slip-ons, this was a real problem. I rang Monsieur Tapie, the now-disgraced Marseille chairman, with my problem. He gave it to me straight. He would resolve my debt to Mama Isabel, but only if I cooperated in match-fixing. And that was it. With that conversation, I was inside the biggest, most secretive match-fixing ring in French football history. I knew things that only I, my teammates, Monsieur Tapie, Monsieur Tapie's hairdresser, every passenger on the number 39 bus that I was traveling on, and just a few thousand others were aware of. Our success was a facade. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. On sight. That's where it goes from. On sight. Thanks a lot, Pepe. How much do wanna give a fuck? Fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. There you go. That was a beautiful reading, an exclusive extract from our new book coming out, our new annual by Ghost Ken Ghostwritten extract, should say. Ghostwritten extract. Ken wants to be clear I on that. I think the ghostwriter has taken some... <laughs> a couple of liberties. <laughs> a couple of poetic poet poet licenses. Well, you tell it to the, the judge, Ken. What can I say? You know, the sessions... Uh, I, I agreed to five half hour sessions. <laughs> and uh, There's only so much that a ghostwriter can get out of those. So filling maybe he filling in the blanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's look, I'm, I'm, I suppose maybe I'll read the book when it comes out. <laughs> if, if, uh, the memoir. <laughs> don't read books, me. Don't read books. I know everything that's said about me, but I just don't read them. If you want to hear the rest of that show, we put it out as a separate podcast. David O'Darty popped onto the couches to give his considered thoughts on Ireland's elimination from the Rugby World Cup. I love Brian Kerr, Ken, you know this. Yeah. I love Brian Kerr more than most other Irish sporting figures. And every time I talk to the guy, uh, aside from his great personality that comes across, uh, particularly at those sort of live events, his, his intelligent and articulate way of talking about the game, combined with his <laughs> track record of almost unblemished success as an underage coach, leads me to the obvious question, why is the guy not still heavily involved in coaching our footballers? That's a difficult question. I mean, you heard what he said. Uh, he's not sure about this Dutch model, no. uh, which is currently being pursued. I mean, one of the things in the book uh, that, that that's going to be coming out is uh, an interview with Damien Duff. And he was, well, he, it's not like he could answer that question. He had the same question. 
that, you know, why is, why is he not involved? It's insane. He had a lot, of, a lot of respect it's, for Kerr. Yeah, he says the words that he used were crazy, laughable, inexplicable. The fact that he's not involved. So he, he doesn't really understand it either. All right, that's it for this show. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter as always at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. Drop Murph an email. We haven't done a PBEZO in a couple of weeks, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Times.com if yeah, you're out. Got a couple of people uh, at the show last night talking to me about PBEZOs that they're definitely going to, their mates are definitely sending in. You know, it's great. It's great to hear that, but, you know, it proof of the pudding. You know, I haven't seen them, so I can't read them. So let's get them in here, folks. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. And Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 